This week on the podcast number 178, we talk about an important yet underreported issue regarding homelessness and the impacts that COVID-19 is having on this population. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. My name is Carisha Martinez, one of the digital advertising whalers here at Whole Whale. And you're listening to The Whole Whale, um, Whole Whale's digital marketing and nonprofit podcast. Today, I have Dan Triglia, who's a postdoc at UPenn at the School of Social Policy and Practice. And in July, congratulations again, will be an associate professor at Penn School of Arts and Sciences. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you. This is fun. I've done one of these before. I don't know what the record is for who has the most podcast interviews on your podcast. Definitely George. <laughs> fair, fair enough. He's the He's been the host for a long time, but as a guest, oh. I, I, this is number two for me. I don't know who the leader is. Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to keep doing interesting things just so I can climb the rankings. <laughs> well, I'll say you're in the lead for right now. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about homelessness, um, which Dan has great expertise in, as a lot of his study has dealt with that. So thinking about homelessness in the land of COVID-19, what factors make homeless people more at risk for coronavirus, particularly in major cities um, and the epicenters of the virus like New York? Sure. Let's just get a sense of the, the scale of this. So on any given night, there are more than half a million people that are homeless by federal definitions. Um, which means that they're sleeping in a shelter or they're sleeping unsheltered. So in a place not meant for human habitation. So think like the subway or streets or a park. Over the course of the year, that number is more like 1.5 to 2 million people. Um, And that generally breaks down into families with kids who tend to um, be younger heads of households, uh, generally, generally speaking in their 20s with younger children, you know, five or younger. Um, and then you have the group that most people associate with homelessness, uh, right? People that are without children um, who more resemble the people that they're seeing on the, on the streets, um, mm-hmm. right? Who are more likely to be older and sicker um, than the rest of the population. That group accounts for about two thirds of homelessness. And that's where you're seeing kind of some real problems at the intersection of homelessness and COVID-19. Um, both based on kind of their comorbidities, the fact that they're older, the fact that they have double the mortality rate of the general population, again, even in non-COVID-19 times, um, and the fact that they are kind of living in less hospitable conditions. If you're homeless, your shelter options are somewhere between a rock and a hard place. And that's kind of, it just if you have an option at all, because most places don't have adequate shelter facilities, even in non-COVID-19 times. Right. Okay. Um, right. There are more than 150,000 people that are experiencing unsheltered homelessness on a given night. And there aren't enough shelter beds across the country to, to accommodate all of them. Okay. Um, so when there is a shelter bed, it's likely to be in a crowded congregate setting. Think like mm-hmm. eight to 12 people in a room. We're talking about single single adult homelessness right now. Mm-hmm. So think like eight to 12 people in a room, often with bunk beds, you're sleeping in very close quarters, you're eating in very close quarters, or if you're unsheltered, you lack access to some basic necessities, right? Think basic hygiene, think regular meals. And there's also kind of no one to keep an eye on you to, to take care of you, right? That's not to take away from the great work that some outreach teams are putting in, but there's no one there on a regular basis to make sure that you're okay. So you kind of have this trade-off here um, that, that, you know, is frankly, you know, is frankly abysmal. Right. So there are a lot of environmental factors that go into making the homeless population a lot more at risk for COVID-19. Like you said, shelter in place really isn't much of an option. And even when there are shelter options, they're often in close proximity to each other, which really doesn't help with social distancing whatsoever. Are there any other factors, maybe physical factors, that play into making the homeless population more at risk? 
I mean, I think those are the big ones. I think I can give kind of a little bit more information about kind of the kind of rates of illness and the aging homeless population. So this was something that I've been working on for the last couple of years is the aging of the homeless population. And one of the cities that we looked at was uh, New York. Uh, we also did studies in Los Angeles and Boston. But essentially you have the, the second half of the baby boom generation, mm -hmm. right? People born between 55 and 64 Is there any reason have that? always made up a disproportionate share of the homeless population, right? Since the, since the eighties. Um, mm -hmm. And they have been kind of growing mm -hmm. as a share of the homeless population um, over time. They've always been at risk of kind of poor, of poor, of poor economic mm -hmm. outcomes as into they came into the housing market and they came into the job market mm -hmm. Um, in the in the early 1980s, um, and one of the problems was yeah. being the second half of the baby boom generation. They were following the first half mm. of the baby boomers, right? People that were first to available housing, people that were first to jobs, and some of those options kind of weren't there as they were coming right. of age. Um, and so they were the face of homelessness in the 1980s, okay. right? And that group has remained disproportionately at high risk of poor negative outcomes um, and homelessness ever since. And to be clear, it's not all the same people, but that group has always been at relatively high risk. And we did some projection work and project that group, people 65 wow. and older are going to grow by, yeah. depending on the city, wow. 250 to 300%, or they're going to, they're going to, their, their, their ranks will um, up to triple um, between 2017, which wow. was generally the last year for which we get data, and 2030, right? And to be clear, people that are homeless tend to have medical conditions associated with how, with their house counterparts. They're 20 years older than them, and they tend to be dying about 12 years earlier than their house counterparts. So they are, right, they're living in conditions uh, that don't, right, poor health, can cause and exacerbate homelessness, and homelessness can cause and exacerbate health conditions. Right, it's like a cycle. It, it, it's an absolutely negative cycle. And, and that's one of the reasons that, and this won't, won't necessarily be the, the topic of this, this podcast, but it's one of the reasons that we need to do more to put people into permanent housing. Right. Is not, or shelter is still homeless. Mm -hmm. And the focus needs to be now, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but even in other times, um, moving people out of shelter and into you know, permanent stable housing. And are there any new issues that COVID-19 has created for the homeless population in general, such as increasing the numbers of homeless people, or is there even a lack of data in finding that information? Yeah, there's a lack of data. And, that, <laughs> and that's a problem that we're encountering on COVID-19 generally. Yeah. So one of the things that we do want to know is what are the trends in homelessness? Because it's not, it may not necessarily be COVID-19 related. Mm. It could be a result of economic circumstances that's leading to this increase in homelessness, right? There, there is research suggesting that increases in unemployment lead to increases in homelessness. And right, I think, I think that passes kind of a first common sense muster. And when we're seeing, I think the number what is about 30, 30 million Americans have filed unemployment claims. Yeah. Right. That, right. That's right. That's deeper um, than we've seen in, the, in an extremely long time, right? I think the steepest since 2008, or maybe steeper than 2008. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Um, one of the beauties of academia, one of the terrible things about academia is how siloed it is um, and how narrow my knowledge is. Oh, and people watch this podcast. Oh, I should tell people. Uh, but some of it's going to be COVID related and yeah. directly COVID related because there are a lot of people that are living in doubled up conditions, mm. right? People, people, you know, that might've lost their housing and so they're living with a family member or a friend, but you know, we don't want people living with us right now for the most part. We don't want people that don't have to be living with us living with us right now. Mm. Um, and especially the people that are kind of, that are likely to be doubled up are people that are working kind of low wage, high contact positions that are more likely to put them at risk of COVID-19 infection Mm -hmm. and transmitting it to others. Right. Right. So if there's a 30 year old that's working at a grocery store um, who's living with their elderly parents, mm -hmm. the parents might not want that 30 year old living with them if they're going out into public every day mm -hmm. and, and then coming back every day. And so that person might be more likely to end up in shelter than they would have in other times. Right. Right. And, and these are, these are compounding effects that are quite scary. 
Uh, but so to your question of how is this affecting homelessness numbers, we, we don't know yet. Mm. Uh, we, we don't know yet. It's, I'm very curious about it and I'm trying to get my hands on those data. Yeah. And it's really interesting that you mentioned these kind of compounding problems that are happening. Um, people are losing their jobs and that's increasing numbers of the homeless community. People are trying to social distance as much as possible and those who may have been offering their home to others um, may not want to be doing that anymore. So it's not just one specific cause that's having this effect. It's coming from multiple avenues at all times. Um, right. And, and, and social networks, right? Social supports yeah. are often, are generally a, a buffer between unemployment or housing and economic instability and the shelter system. Mm-hmm. Um, right. There are a lot of people that come onto hard times that have someplace to go, a friend or a family member, and with, without that buffer, without that cushion, I expect we're going to see more people yeah. coming into shelter, right? And, and there are, I know that there are moratoriums on evictions right now, mm-hmm. um, right? moratoriums on foreclosures. It is certainly safe to say that not, not every landlord is following that and not every tenant feels empowered to push back or call the police. There are communities that have been marginalized legally and otherwise that don't feel like they can call the police when their landlord is throwing their stuff out the window or throwing their stuff out the door. Right. Um, so we shouldn't be seeing this problem right now, but I'm betting if we're not seeing it yet, we'll be, we'll be seeing it soon. And then when this moratorium is lifted, the economy is not going to come right back. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and oftentimes the people at the lower end of the income spectrum, uh, the economy comes back for them last or, or close to last. Yep. And so even after an eviction moratorium ends, Mm -hmm. you're going to see a, or you might say, I don't want to predict it, but you may see landlords kind of that are bitter because they didn't collect their rent. Um, And also tenants who, you know, suddenly who still can't pay, right? Because they've lost their jobs and those jobs may be slow to come back online and unemployment insurance doesn't, doesn't cover it or, or maybe ending. Um, and so I'm expecting the homelessness ranks to rise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So let's talk more about those numbers, about the impact of COVID-19 and the homeless population. How are they increasing? Are they increasing? I, uh, well, so, some colleagues and I, well, first, this is something that anyone can investigate. Um, just look at, and this isn't on kind of levels of homelessness, but this is on COVID-19's impact on people that are experiencing homelessness. If you go to... Google News, and you do a search for homeless and COVID-19, you're going to see articles come up from all across the country, from, you know, homelessness hotspots like New York and Los Angeles um, and and San Francisco to even more rural communities about challenges uh, facing the homeless population uh, through COVID-19 and people that are homeless contracting COVID-19. Um, so it's a universal problem. Uh, some colleagues and I have took a, a first crack at make, making some estimates about what the impact is going of COVID-19 will be on the homeless population in terms of um, infections, hospitalizations, critical cases, and mortality. And so we use those, I mentioned at the beginning of, of our conversation, those point in time numbers, which are about 500,000 people. And so we use that as, as our basis. And of them, we expect about 21,000 to be hospitalized and about 3,500 to die. Wow. Um, right. And these are, and, and I've mentioned this in, in kind of subliminal ways up to this point, but these are almost certain to be kind of lower bounds or underestimates. Um, for one, these are point in time numbers. And remember that kind of turnover from a point in time number to an annual number is like three to four times. Mm. So there, you know, as we think about annual turnover in the homeless population, you know, we should expect kind of more COVID-19 cases among the homeless population, yeah. uh, number one. And second, something that we just talked about was rising homelessness, um, which could have kind of a, a, a two-tiered impact. One is more people will be homeless and therefore more people that get COVID-19 will, will be homeless when they contract it mm-hmm. um, and test positive for it or show symptoms for it. And second, um, the conditions of homelessness you know, increase the risk 
of COVID-19, A, infection, and B, negative outcomes. Mm. So we're, we, we're going to see some, some, some pretty bad numbers, I'm guessing, over the next six months or so. Yeah. That's honestly really scary. <laughs> and to think that- you didn't, bring me, you didn't bring me on here for good news, did you? <sighs> Guess not. <laughs> and to think that a lot of these homeless situations are just one degree away from being there, like we mentioned earlier. <clears throat> Oh yeah, how, how many people are on the brink of homelessness? Yeah. Um, so one of my other projects, in addition to my pen work, I'm also a senior research fellow on something called the United for Alice Project, mm. which measures income insufficiency uh, for every county in the United States. Wow. And so, and, and Alice stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained and Employed, mm-hmm. and refers to those people, kind of make those households making more than the federal poverty level, mm-hmm. which is, as we all know, kind of out, outdated, um, and, and, and low. Right. Um, and, um, and what it actually costs to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And generally, you know, about 13, 14% of us households are below the federal poverty level, but it's about 40% that are below the Alice threshold nationally. Mm-hmm. So about the 37% of, of the population that is not poor, but broke, but it has a hard time making ends meet. Yeah. Right. And that's only looking at the bare necessities, mm. right? These are conservative estimates of what it costs to live in terms of childcare and, and housing and food and transportation costs. Um, and part of what's been gratifying about my pen work and this United for Alice work is that you, you can follow the trajectory of people in, in good ways, but also in bad ways. Yeah. That, you know, a, a family that's struggling to make ends meet, right? But, right? They don't have enough money to repair a car when their car breaks down. And then they have a hard time getting their children to school. They have a hard time mm-hmm. getting to work. Public transportation may not be reliable where they are or might not be an option where they are. Um, or their child gets sick and they have to take days off of work to care for their child. And they may not have those protections um, and they lose their job. Um, and again, without social supports yeah. and some help getting getting back um, along with some, some time and, and space to take care of severe economic issues, um, right? They could end up homeless. These are, these are not rare stories. Right. It's like everyone is just one emergency away from being homeless or most. People. Yeah. No, it, it is, it is far too many people. Mm-hmm. The survey data about household savings are, are grim. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're going to and, and, and I'm guessing that in a good economy, we don't see that come out in, you know, public assistance cases or SNAP food, you know, you know, formerly referred to as food stamps mm-hmm. um, or, or homelessness because there's, there's enough economic activity yeah. to sustain. But, right. But that, that's soft, right. Those are soft numbers. And as soon as that kind of bubble ends, now we're seeing it here and we have, you know, some basic protection through the economic impacts payments, although those are generally not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. to sustain people for, for much time yeah. um, and unemployment insurance the, the, the same way. Um, and so as those run out and as there's a gap between household needs um, and income coming in, we're going to see more, you know, more, more cash assistance needs, more food assistance needs mm-hmm. um, and more housing assistance needs. Right. And we need to be careful and we need to be thoughtful about how we address them. What do you mean? So right, certainly a, a universal basic income of some kind has been postulated, and I am not an economist. Let, 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 me, let me not stray too far from my, from my lane here. But in terms of how we help people that, are, that suddenly need housing assistance mm. um, and are on the brink of homelessness, building more shelters isn't the answer. Right. right we can't build our, our way out of this. Again, people that are in shelter are still homeless. Right. And we've learned over and over again that keeping people in their in their housing, in their communities, um, through generally flexible assistance, oftentimes that involves rental assistance, mm. um, maybe paying rental arrears, or um, connecting people to mainstream benefits like TANF and SNAP and Medicaid and things like that, um, and employment services. And for people that do have to come into shelter, um, trying to get them out as quickly as they can. Again, sometimes through uh, flexible assistance, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes through permanent supportive housing. 
And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grants, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, We really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. Right. And we've talked about a little bit of the ways that we can start to find solutions to these problems, um, which is creating permanent housing as opposed to shelter and having these more thoughtful solutions as opposed to just trying to duct tape the problem. Are there any specific cases that you've seen where these solutions have been effective? Sure. So let let me have a little bit of since we're talking in the in the COVID era. Yeah. And I presume this is going to air in the COVID era, given who knows when the COVID era is going to end. Most likely. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about some of the COVID-related and COVID-specific kind of issues. So one of the things that I mentioned in the kind of at the top of our conversation Mm -hmm. was that shelters are crowded. Right. And so we need to be getting people out of shelter, right? That's a, that was a priority before, but certainly it's more important now and the evidence is clear that just reducing the density of people within shelters, mm-hmm. like, it just isn't effective. And putting people into slightly less crowded gymnasiums either, right? And, and that has been one of the approaches. But in Seattle, for example, and this, is, uh, this was demonstrated through a news story, that one cluster of COVID-19 cases occurred in a shelter that was created specifically to allow for more space between residents. Mm. Um, right? So that's one kind of COVID-specific issue, but again, speaks to the need for kind of long-term housing. Right. Um, something, again, specific to COVID is we can't just separate people who are sick because at this point, we don't know who they are. Right. Um, so there was a, a study that came out of Boston where they tested more than 400 people. There was a news article talking about the testing of more than 600 people. There was um, an article, or was a letter that came out in, in JAMA the Journal of the American Medical Association, mm-hmm. where they tested about 400 people. Of the 400 or so people that they tested, right, 36% tested positive. Okay. And I think that was 135, 137, somewhere in that, ball- that ballpark. Yeah. And of, of them, of is 147 people, so 36%. Mm-hmm. And of them, 88% were asymptomatic. Wow. Right. And when someone's asymptomatic, they could be test they could be spreading it without without knowing it. And they could be infecting and killing clients and staff around them. And we'll get the staff in a second. Um, a third way to deal with this is leveraging empty hotel and motel rooms. Mm. And some places are doing this more so than others. Um, so Los Angeles is looking at using or is using uh, fifteen thousand hotel rooms, I believe, as part of part of its project room key. But in New York and LA, we're talking about 100,000 empty rooms each. Mm. And that's enough for their entire homeless populations. Yeah. Um, and we need to be strategic about how we use them. Right. Right. Start with people that are kind of extremely vulnerable to negative outcomes mm-hmm. from COVID-19. Right. People that are older, right, 65 or 63, you kind of start at 65 and then start working your way down. And people that have comorbidities. And again, some way to do that is by screening people, by asking them about their, uh, their medical history, their health history. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. A better way to do that would also be data matches between healthcare systems and homelessness systems. Mm. Um, but those are not right. And and those are some those are things that are happening more routinely in some places, not necessarily specific to COVID nineteen, but generally, yeah, um, oftentimes related to care coordination. Mm. Um, right. The, the, right. A hospital or a healthcare system wants to wants the shelter caseworker to be aware of an appointment coming up. Um, and maybe know what kind of medication someone is on, and a shelter caseworker wants to be able to make a healthcare appointment for someone that's experiencing homelessness. Right. So uh, those systems work out well, but I'm not seeing those kind of even ad hoc matches. Yeah. Come online at the rate that that I would like them to. So we're not able to track that comorbidity information right. um, and also infection rate information. Right. Um, and then kind of moving from there and more broadly into permanent housing. Mm. Um, Right. So we do need to be putting people into permanent housing. That's true generally. And it is certainly true here. I pointed this out in the video 
that Connecticut has actually been doing a very, very good job of this. Mm. They've been a model at emptying their shelters. And uh, when I think it was Columbus House posted a letter to its followers, they had placed 44 people um, from their facilities into permanent supportive housing or into permanent housing. Yeah. Um, That's fantastic. And that's where our emphasis needs to be. Right. Because when this is over, we can't, we can't take people that are, are already vulnerable yeah, and then just kind of import them back into shelter. Right. It's just not right. It's not and right. We, it's not, and we can do better. Definitely. And, and, and we can do better. Uh, and so our, our emphasis needs to be there. Right. Um, one other thing that I want to add is that we need to take care of people that are on the front lines mm. in, um, Right. And, and the attention has rightfully been on healthcare workers, but that also needs to carry over for people that are working with vulnerable, vulnerable populations. Right. Um, right. So it means we, we need to be providing, um, well, we need, we need to be minimizing unnecessary contact between clients and staff again, because we don't know who's, who's positive and who isn't. Right. Um, and right. So that's number one. And if we need to give them, you know, gloves and, masks and personal protection equipment so they can be protected, right? I'm at least hearing anecdotally, so take that with a grain of salt, but I am hearing anecdotally that there are severe staffing issues in part because people don't, people that have been working in shelters or in homeless outreach mm. don't want to put themselves at risk. They have families, right? They have kids that rely on them mm-hmm. and they don't want to be at risk. I can't blame them. Yeah. I mean, you pointed out so many flaws <laughs> that honestly could easily be fixed. Um, there are so many rooms in New York and LA that hotel rooms and motel rooms where systems, the governments can be placing families and people. Um, the Connecticut House, Columbus House example that you gave with them putting about 44 people into permanent housing is one that I really love. Um, and do you have any more insight into how exactly they're doing that and what they're doing that makes it easier and better where um, it seems like other states just can't for whatever reason? I, I, I don't know. Um, so I, I can't, I have not had any contact with uh, Cindy Fox, the head of Columbus House or mm-hmm. anyone there. Um, but I, I think one of, one of the roles that, one of the roles that the federal government should, should be doing, um, should be taking, um, is sharing of best practices and coordination and guidance. Right. Um, right now, that's largely happening on an ad hoc basis. Mm. And there have been organizations that have been kind of filling that void. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nationalized and homelessness has probably been uh, uh, at the top of that. They've, they've, been, they've really been stepping up. They've been hosting... I'm, I'm, I'm going to say daily webinars, and it might not be daily, but they have been hosting frequent webinars about any range of topics. Yeah. And for those people that are in, in homelessness, I would suggest that you 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 peek in and look through. And I, I believe they're all being uh, they're all being recorded. Mm-hmm. So look through episodes, look through webinars that have taken place, see if there's anything relevant to you, um, because that's where a lot of that information is is happening. Yeah. Um, and also look at the look at the schedule coming up to see if there's anything of interest. Um, I know the, the alliance is undergoing a massive effort to collect that information systematically. Right? What are you doing to alleviate uh, COVID nineteen among uh, your homeless populations mm. um, across the about four hundred continuums of care um, across the United States? It should it should be happening much more routinely, much more systematically. Yeah. Um, than an effort by, you know, a wonderful nonprofit or any nonprofit, right. right? HUD has A, leverage, and B, a $44 billion budget. Um, and as much as I wish, wish that NAH had a $44 billion budget, um, they don't. Yeah. Um, and, right, and, and, and they don't have the resources to completely fill that void. And this is a place where HUD could, could play a larger role than it has. Mm. So going back to these systematic processes that could be in place that would make uh, these problems have solutions, what are ways that you think that the federal and or state government can be aiding the homeless population? If you were to name like 
the top three things that you could change by tomorrow? Sure. Uh, so one of them is just allocation of money. Mm. So there is a big role for the, for the federal government here. I mentioned coordination and, and guidance before, mm-hmm. but one of them, one of them is money. So I mentioned the paper that uh, I worked on with a, a large team where we, we did those projections of how many people would be impacted. We also did capacity projections. Um, and with that, we put a dollar amount to what's going to be needed to fund the additional accommodations for homeless adults. Mm. And we put that at about $11.5 billion. Put the federal stimulus bill, the CARES Act, allocated, I think it was $4 billion. So about a third of that. Mm. Um, so there is, there, there's a significant gap there. Right. Um, FEMA is also available and FEMA is also providing money. Mm-hmm. But, they're also, but they're not providing you know, the same level of coordination and guidance. State governments and local governments are in charge of implementation. Right? They're giving the direct orders to nonprofits. And they're doing direct work right. to um, to address the crisis, and that could be data coordination, right? But it is primarily, you know, protecting people. Yeah. And so they have opportunities here to 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 do that work that I was mentioning before, to place people, you know, out of shelter, into hotel rooms, into permanent housing, mm-hmm. right? Change some of the emphasis of where the work is, and protect their workers. Right. To some degree, that's a, you know, there are procurement problems, right? There is a long backup for personal protection equipment. Um, and that is frustrating to see. Um, sometimes it's also just delays in, in moving these things along. And how do you think people at home listening to this episode can help? So people that are listening can donate to large national nonprofits, places like the National Alliance and Homelessness that I've mentioned a few times, and the National Low Income Housing Coalition. And these are groups that are fighting for broad scale policy change. Um, they've lobbied pretty effectively so far, right? They were pushing very hard to get that $11.5 billion. And still, while it's only $4 billion, moved the federal government, moved Congress away from lower numbers uh, that it was at previously. Mm. Um, so th- that's one way to help. Second, you can donate to groups that are providing shelter, outreach, food, and healthcare to people that are experiencing homelessness in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great way to do it, right? There are some organizations that are providing additional outreach, some organizations that are in fact paying for hotel rooms. Wow. Right. So they need help, right? Probably now more than ever. Um, another thing that you can do is lobby for change. So just yourself, call, write to elected officials. Um, and especially Congress is working on the next stimulus bill now. So that's going to, that can go a long way. Mm. So those are three things. Um, that people can do. And, and fourth is just become informed, right? Mm-hmm. Most people, most people are only thinking about homelessness. Um, I don't want to say most people are only thinking about homelessness to the extent that it, that it impacts them, but homelessness is certainly not the first thing on everyone's mind. Right. For sure. Um, and for people that live in major cities like New York and Los Angeles and Philadelphia and San Francisco, you're mostly thinking about homelessness when you're passing people that are on the streets and panhandling and mm. you suspect are themselves homeless. Yeah. Well, people aren't commuting now. So issues related to homelessness are even farther out of mind at this moment mm. than they would be in, in more ordinary circumstances. Like out of sight, out of mind. So, exactly. So just keeping yourself kind of apprised of some of these things. Yeah. is just a good way to, to stay informed and involved. Go to the organizations, go to the, go, sorry, go to the websites of some of the organizations that I mentioned before, the National Alliance to End Homelessness, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, um, to uh, find out more about this problem and also find out a little bit more um, about how you can help. Mm. Awesome. I think that's a great way to transition. Um, I always love to end on a call to action um, before we head into our rapid fire round. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you, Dan, so much for all of the information that you've given us uh, from your research, both before and during COVID-19. Yeah. uh, No, this is, this is, this is incredibly important. Um, But this is, this is more, this is more important than any work that I've ever done. Mm. I, all right. I am from an academic perspective, less productive than I've ever been. Um, because right, I'm working on other things that are more helpful, more meaningful in a present moment. Right. Um, 
And that, that's, that's important. Thank you. Uh, but now we'll transition into our rapid fire round, which is my favorite part of the episode. Um, and this is just a list of 10 questions that we ask all our guests. I think there are a lot uh, of- By fun. the way, let me interrupt you to say, I saw your questions and knew right. that it would be my least, it would, it would be my <laughs> least favorite part of the episode. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun, I promise. Just okay, I, I, saw te- I saw tech questions. I was like, tech tools. Well, this is going to get into poorly. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> well, you read Strapped my mind in. because the first one is what's one tech tool or website that you or your organization has been using in the last year? One tool that I've gotten to know a little bit over the last maybe month or so is a tool called Arrowpoint. And mm. I just put up a video. So many of the things that I just told you, I also yeah. mentioned in, in a video that's on YouTube. It's also hosted on this website called Arrowpoint, where as you watch the video, you see kind of kind of time-stamped like articles and sources scroll through the video. Yeah. So like A, it's a way of validating information, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise anyone can say anything. And right. we've all seen enough YouTube videos to know that that's true. <laughs> um, go to Facebook, you, you know, this is, this is a fact. Very, very true. Um, right. And so here you, you can see the information and then you can ask kind of questions about it or question the yeah. validity of an article, or you can have really informed conversations about it. Um, and you can also dig in a little bit deeper. Yeah. Right. You can actually click on the article if you want to learn more about that topic. So I mentioned uh, the issue in Boston, or I also link in that in, in the video and in Averpoint to the CDC guidance yeah. to local communities and to nonprofits on helping people that are experiencing homelessness, right? That's really important. So I want people to go there, A, because it kind of creates a platform in which we can have a very informed conversation um, and B, can... Uh, serve a, a purpose of a further education. Yeah, I will say I've seen Averpoint and I love it. Like it's like footnotes, but advanced technology. <laughs> and I agree. I think it allows users who go and see these videos to not just see like footnotes at the bottom of a paper, but be able to click in real time and learn more um, as our attention spans grow shorter and shorter. Um, yes, that is true. Are there any tech issues you're battling with right now? <laughs> Does ignorance count? <laughs> Are there tech issues that I'm battling with? No. Um, my memory only goes as far back as the beginning of this conversation, and we <laughs> haven't had any tech issues here. Uh, I'm in an old West Phil- I'm, an old- I'm in an old West Philadelphia house, so tech issues are not rare. The fact yeah. that we've had a stable internet connection is an immense success. Blessings. Um, what's coming in the next year that has you most excited? In general? Yeah. Let me bring it. Let me bring it to the conversation that we just had. Sure. And certainly, there's nothing exciting about COVID nineteen, but this could be an opportunity to transform homeless services. I just mentioned some efforts to move vulnerable populations out of shelters into hotels, um, and you know, in some places, and Columbus is kind of an example of this permanent housing. Mm. Um, we right, we just wrote that paper about a year ago, a year and a half ago, or so. Um, on the aging homelessness problem. And this could be the motivation, the fire to actually take those people that are highly vulnerable to COVID-19 and other health problems and move them out of shelter and get them the permanent housing that they've needed this whole time. Mm. So there is an opportunity for the homelessness assistance system to transform itself. Yeah, definitely. Can you talk about a mistake you made early in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Yeah. Um, I can, how many mistakes can we talk about? Just one. Um, <laughs> should, I, should, I, should I just have recorded my conversation with my therapist? Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think one of, one of my early career problems was not being focused, was wanting to be kind of at the cusp of everything. I wanted to put my hand into everything. And so I wanted to kind of, do the big picture academic thinking while also kind of remaining very connected to what's going on on the ground in as many places as I could. And not being sure exactly how to balance, not just that from a time perspective, but also from a focus perspective and how I can frame my own work perspective. Um, And I think that's changed over time. Mm. Um, And and part, it's a function of kind of just being in this field longer and knowing a little bit more about kind of my role in this world. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe there's kind of just some measure of, of kind of additional certainty in myself as I've been in this field a little bit longer. But 
right? I would communicate when I was communicating with people about my about my role. It was all over the place. Yeah, and I think I would people go, "What's he? He's doing everything. What's he doing? He's doing nothing because he's doing everything." Mm. Um, that's not great. And I think now I can still kind of do a lot of things, mm-hmm. but now I have a singular vision that that defines it all, and I'm much better at conveying that mm. um, to 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 anyone that I'm that I'm speaking with. Yeah. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? Not in this day and age. I, 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 w- I would love to. I, 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 would, I would love to say yes. Yeah. I think we lack a social service system mm-hmm. um, and a broader economic um, safety net system that's going to allow for that. Yeah. And I mean, the answer is to some degree, no, we're always going to need people that are going to, there will, the answer is to a large degree, no. There are always people that are going to need help to be provided by nonprofits and, right, and, and governments. Yeah. Right, and, I, and I kind of put those two in some ways in the same bucket because generally nonprofits are not always, but often contracted by governments to do the direct service work. Um, right? If we had something like a, a universal basic income or stronger housing uh, insurance assistance mm-hmm. or kind of stronger unemployment insurance assistance, Mm-hmm. Right there, there might be a less need for some of the services provided by nonprofits. Yeah. Um, right. It's unfortunate that we're that we're not there yet. Um, right. And and that's one question that that I often get, um, and one source of skepticism from some people is like, "Oh, you can't work too hard. You'll put yourself out of business. If there's no more homelessness, you don't have a job." That is the least of my concerns right now. I wish right. that was more of a concern. <laughs> Yeah. Right. I just mentioned, I, right. I just told you there are 2 million people that are homeless on a given year. Yeah. Given year. I'm not worried about, about kind of put it, about making myself obsolete. Right. At the moment. Let's just say. I, I wish I was. I wish I was. Right. Right. I wish that was a problem that we had. But it's not coming anytime soon. <laughs> no, no. You're starting to make me yell at my computer. <laughs> you're passionate. You're passionate. I usually only yell at my computer during tech problems that you mentioned before. <laughs> Imagine you had a hot tub time machine going back to the beginning of your work. What advice would you give yourself? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think this speaks to your question earlier about, um, about, I, about kind of vision and understanding my, my role in, in this world. Mm-hmm. And not, not this world, but in, in the homelessness world. Um, but also to speak more passionately about my work. Yeah. Um, I've often struggled to connect kind of my kind of human passion for this topic and, and energy on this to the academic work. Mm-hmm. And I think I've done a better job at that as time has gone on. Um, and if, so if I had a hot tub time machine to bring myself kind of just talk to, you know, 22 year old me. Yeah. It would be one, don't grow your hair out, bad luck. <laughs> Um, and two, um, kind of just do, do more to understand your, your role, um, in the social service world. Yeah. Let's also say you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry. What would it do? It would give the industry a more directed focus Mm. on providing permanent housing. Yeah. On more focus on prevention of homelessness, more focus on rapid rehousing, and more focus on taking people that are in shelter and moving them out of shelter into permanent housing, permanent stable housing as quickly as, as we can. Uh, right? One thing that if you dig into the homelessness research at all or the homelessness advocacy literature at all, one thing that you're going to see over and over again is that housing is healthcare, right? Housing is health. Housing is associated with better outcomes along a spectrum of topics, mm-hmm. right? Certainly in the healthcare sector, um, in the housing stability sector, in the, uh, right, in the criminal justice sector as well. So moving people, right? And it's just better for people. It's better for people, you know, psychologically. Mm-hmm. And so we need to do a better job at keeping people in their housing and moving people that aren't in housing now into real permanent stable housing. Right. It's, be- it's better for them um, and it's better for society overall from any number of perspectives. One of which is, is, is financial. How did you get started in the social impact space? So there's another question that you have about 
parrots, like what they said to you or something like that. Um, and I'm going to combine these. Okay. Um, sure. I'm, I'm going to combine them. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking charge now. Sure. Um, which is, again, I work, I, I work, I work at academia. Mm-hmm. So I need to take a, a 30 second answer and make it nine minutes. I, I started off as a political science major with George. Oh. And yeah. Yeah. And kind of wandered around for the first couple of years. Mm. Like, oh, I want to get into politics. And mm. um, I wasn't sure. I don't want to be in policy. And I took my basic classes and, and kind of remained without a vision. And then I took a class. I think the class was religion and social welfare. Yeah. Um, and I was very interested in the, um, I was very interested in the implementation of social welfare programs perspective mm. of that, particularly the evaluation of those programs. And I saw the good that can come from that kind of work. And I also saw just how poorly some evaluations were being were being managed and, and mm. being done. And thought this needs to be, I, I mean, part of me thought I can do a better job of this. Yeah. And things kind of snowballed from there. That was late in college. And then, you know, started taking more focused classes, more, more focused classes, um, did an internship at Brookings, um, mm-hmm. went on to a social policy focused master's degree at the Kennedy School, mm-hmm. um, and then wanted to get into the social impact, into the social welfare space yeah. without, without much regard for which part of it it was. Because yeah. we're talking about kind of vulnerable populations and their welfare, mm-hmm. right? We could be talking about food. We could be talking about income and economic security. We could be talking about healthcare. We could be talking about housing. It's why I applied to a broad range of positions. The job that worked out was in homelessness. Um, and that's where I've been since. Um, and I, I kind of preempted your, your parents' question, kind of, was there, was there, was, is there anything your parents said to you that um, kind of put you on this path? Yeah. Um, and so I can't think of anything that my, I can't think of any singular thing that my parents said to me. There was no kind of Spider-Man Uncle Ben moment in a car. Yeah. Going, with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. Um, and I have a four-year-old son that's watched Spider-Man in the last week and a half. And so that's come up. Yeah. Um, my, both of my parents have taught and taught in generally underserved communities. Mm. My mom was a third grade teacher um, in a low income elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad taught at the New York City College of Technology, mm-hmm. one of the city university schools, yeah. and taught very non-traditional students, right? Some of them might who might not have had other college options, others of whom um, might have had another career, and then were turning to this. And um, he taught a lot of, you know, environmental control issues and mm-hmm. facilities management issues. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I saw the way he worked for his students yeah, and the way he stressed for his students and the efforts he took to make sure that his students kind of that succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, and in any bureaucratic institution and, you know, any, any college is a bureaucratic institution. It's easy for students to get, to get lost um, and to to not it kind of bureaucratically and just in their own educational process. And my dad worked so hard and stressed so hard when he saw students that were kind of falling off track because mm. he knew their potential. He knew where they were coming from. He knew their circumstances and who they might have might have had to support. Yeah. Right, people that had other professions or were coming out of jail or prison mm. and needed these certifica- certifications, needed these degrees to really get ahead in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to get chances from many other people and many other institutions. Right. And so I saw that and I'm not going to say like, I saw that and a light bulb went off my head. I need to do that. But that certainly set an example for where my priorities should be. Right. Last, but honestly, my favorite question is what advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? You're needed now more than ever. So that's not advice so much as it is a bit of encouragement. Mm. Um, I think it's going to be hard. So if you're looking to enter the social impact sector, it's hard right now because while the need has maybe never been higher Mm -hmm. um, or maybe hasn't been higher since the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, um, the resources aren't going to be there because with any recession comes a decrease um, in federal and state revenues that lead to decreases in social service funding, generally speaking. And that's going to be a concern, right? There just isn't the money there. And so that's going to be a concern. So find ways to help, mm-hmm. whether it's in the not-for-profit sector or the for-profit sector, find ways to help because things might not be 
things are certainly not going to be as encouraging on the job market as they were six months ago. Yep. And it's a tough time to be graduating. Yep. And COVID-19 has thrown life into disarray in any number of fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's true, I think, for just about it. Just for just about everyone. But if you were completing your senior year and you were very excited about it and suddenly that entire experience has ended, number yeah. one. And, and two, being on campus, there are resources available to you mm-hmm. that might not have otherwise, that wouldn't be available remotely. Right? Career, you know, career services advising, things like that. You can just hop into an office. Mm-hmm. You can still make a phone call. You can still send an email. The casual popping into an office doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, so kind of, one thing that I would encourage them to do is be proactive right. about kind of about bugging people, about nudging people. Yeah. Um, and third, f- find a way to help, even if it isn't the way you had initially planned on or anticipated mm. helping. Right. There may not be the same level of jobs in the social service sector. Um, right. Again, I don't. I don't have data to back this up. Yeah. Um, so, so right, things could change in the next two months, six months. Mm-hmm. But my guess is that, you know, nonprofits are not going to have the budgets they thought they were going to have, mm-hmm. both, you know, as, you know, government funding uh, not closes off, but, redu- you know, see some reductions. But also fundraisers that were scheduled yeah. are not happening. You know, galas that were scheduled yeah. are not happening. And nonprofits are going to see budget shortfalls as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And so some of the nonprofit opportunities that might have been there you know, when you started looking at jobs mm-hmm. are not, aren't going to be there anymore. Right. And so, you know, find ways to help it as best you can. Yeah. Right. And don't put too much pressure on yourself. If you can't help now, because those opportunities aren't there, mm-hmm. keep your, keep those values, keep those priorities. So that a, maybe you can help in other ways in other parts of your life and B, maybe you can help later. Yeah. Well, that concludes our rapid fire rounds. And on a very lovely note, I would add. <laughs> I'm, I'm not all bad news. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan, for coming on the pod. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah. People can find some more information about me at dantruglia.com. Cool. Um, I will update it before this comes out. <laughs> right. I also do work with the University of Pennsylvania, with United for Alice, and people can find some more information um, about me there. Awesome. Thanks so much again, Dan. All right. Thanks. Oh, let's not forget, I have a profile on the Hallwell page. Yeah. I've been working with Holwell for a long time now. That's another place. People can find me on too many places on the internet, it turns out. <laughs> or not enough. <laughs> no one's saying that. <laughs> Thanks again, Dan. All right, take care. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at wholewhale. And thanks for joining us. Please consider sharing this episode with others working in the field because this type of advice and this type of thinking uh, doesn't really happen as much as it should. And I think uh, Dan does an excellent job sharing the, the solutions mindset and what policies need to be at a, at a city and state level. Well, thanks as always for listening, and this is number 178. You know where to find resources at wholewell.com slash podcasts, and always special thanks to gregthomasmusic.org. Love that music. Thanks, Greg.